0: and welcome to the Vineyard Northwest podcast. At Vineyard Northwest, we aim to be a culture that welcomes heaven to earth by raising up world-changing kingdom leaders. We hope you enjoy this message from our senior pastor, Dan Cochran. Hey, thank you, worship team, uh, for all the work you put into that. And I think I'm thankful for our worship team as much as anything, maybe more than anything else, that they're worshipers and that they are here to worship themselves. And so they're entering into God's presence and doing it in a high enough quality way and just enough excellence there that uh, we can all just jump right in with them. So I really appreciate that. Somehow I'm not aligned here. Alignment is really important. Did you know that? There's a... (laughs) There's a book written by a man named Graham Cook and it's called Alignment. And basically, uh, he talks about the fact that we are new internally and that growing as a believer is simply having my outward behavior become into alignment with the new person that I already am. Now, there are other facets of it, two deeper insight into who God is, deeper insight into what he's done for me. That's all spiritual growth. As well. But this concept of alignment is a key thing that we as believers have to understand. I, I was thinking of this earlier. Lori and I, our first major trip, we took uh, right out of seminary and we drove out west, went through the Rocky Mountains on, on a vacation. And after I had graduated, and the day that we left, I took the car to get gas and I hit a big pothole. Didn't think anything of it. But we had gone all the way through the Rocky Mountains, driven on all those roads where it's like there's no guardrails. Where the white line is is where the cliff starts. And I can hardly handle that. But when we got through all of that, I noticed the front tires were worn on one side right down to the cords. Why? Because the front end was out of alignment. And alignment is this thing that brings us into peace. It brings us in into walking in God's power. And I think there's probably nothing that makes us more salty than to live in alignment with who God's made us to be. Because that releases the presence of God through us and in us. And we're in this series uh, called Salt of the Earth. And you know, Jesus said that we are the salt of the earth. If you're a believer in Jesus, and by that I mean... If you've personally come to the point that you've opened your heart to Jesus Christ and received him into your heart and life, then you're a believer and Jesus says to you, you're salt. You're the salt of the earth. And I've been meditating on this, thinking about this. You know, we have a couple salt licks in our yard for the deer. And, you know, deer don't get up in the morning and think, oh man, we we have to go get our salt. You know, did you get your salt yet today? You know, there's... You see, life can't exist without salt. Did you know that biological life? We can't exist without salt. And so there's this intuitive hunger. There's this just intrinsic desire for salt that animals have. Now, human beings, we take it a step further, don't we? And we recognize that salt has this distinctiveness to it that makes food taste a whole lot better. Now now listen, if salt tasted like steak, you wouldn't put salt on steak. You put salt on steak because it's different. And by having it there, it draws out the flavor. And so not only is there this intrinsic need for salt, if it tastes like potato chips, you wouldn't put it on potato chips. But the fact that you put it on them enhances the flavor and the taste. And um, the world has... This intrinsic need for salt, that's what Jesus is saying, just like the deer that go through our yard needs salt, the, the un, un, unbelieving world needs salt, and you're salt. And the unbelieving world it needs that salt intrinsically, but there's also even sometimes a conscious understanding of the need for salt. You know even, even, the, even the world that rejects Jesus, even people that are atheists, they would think, they would recognize that if there is a God, and if God does have people in this world, they would have to be a distinct group of people. They couldn't just be like everybody else. They couldn't just be a reflection of the culture that they live in. They would have to be distinct. We've been talking about that distinction in the last few weeks, and Wilson gave the first message where uh, we looked at that verse that said, the judgment was beginning at the house of God. And that word judgment, we always uh, take the word judgment and we, we think, well, that means condemnation. But actually, the word judgment itself doesn't mean condemnation. The word judgment simply means assessment. And there's a lot of times that the assessment ends in condemnation. But it it just means to assess something, to sort through it, actually. like If you have a jar of change and you pour it out on the table and you pull the nickels and the pennies and the dimes and you're separating them all, you are judging them. You, You are assessing them. The Greek word is krino, and it means to sort through for the purpose of assessing. But with the believer, anytime God enters into this judgment with a believer or with the church, It always is for the purpose of pruning. It's not for the purpose of condemning. And it will never lead to condemnation because Jesus already took the condemnation on the cross. And and so when we recognize that, then we recognize that what God's in the process of is working in our lives in such a way to make us salty for the world because the world needs salty people. The world needs the church to be salt. Now, there's a tremendous encouragement in all of this because Jesus said, "The thief comes only to kill, steal and destroy. I came to give them abundant life." Think of of thriving. Think of life that thrives. Now, not not necessarily that your circumstances are always good or or desirable, but that no matter what circumstances you're in, you're gonna thrive because you know Jesus. You're gonna have peace. You're gonna have strength to go through. the. You're gonna have wisdom to know what to do next. You're gonna thrive in life. That's what Jesus promises us. The Old Testament uh, affirms that and really presents the culture for Jesus to say a statement like that. Jeremiah 29, 11, God said, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, and they are plans for welfare and not calamity, that you may have a future, And a hope. Romans 5.17 in the New Testament says, those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign through Jesus Christ, reign in life through Jesus Christ. So there is this promise of God that if you know Jesus... What, that, what, what this abundance of grace means. Grace is God meeting us at our point of need and providing what we need. That's what grace is. And so God gives us an abundance of grace, an abundance of him meeting at us our point of need. But then he says, the gift of righteousness. See, righteousness is a gift. It's not something we earn. The Bible says that when you receive Jesus, he becomes your righteousness, But more important than that, the Bible says that we become righteous. We become the the righteousness of God. We trade our fallen nature for his righteous nature. So that when you receive Jesus, you have righteousness. Righteousness simply means alignment. It means rightness. It means you are in alignment with what God created you to be. And, And so, it's, it's like a carpenter making something level. If it's level, it's righteous. If a carpenter builds something and it's crooked and the and the corners aren't square, it's not righteous because it's not put together the right way. Righteous means that you and I are what God created us to be. So you have a new heart, a new nature if you've received Christ. So it's, it's, you can say you're no longer a sinner because at the core of your being, Sin is no longer the driving force in your life. That doesn't mean you don't sin, but it means it's no longer the driving force in your life. You have righteousness that is the driving force of your life. You're no longer an addict or a failure or a thief or a loser or a liar or an angry person because you are new, created new in Christ. And so Jeremiah uh, elucidates this when Jeremiah said, quotes God as saying this, God said, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. So he says, I'm going to give them new hearts and I'm going to put it, I'm going to make it internal this time. He says, I'm going to put it in their minds and on their hearts. And think of this, instead of thinking of the word law, we, you know, we kind of have a negative connotation of law of, of like black and white, right or wrong and earning something. Think of this. God says, I'm going to write my ways on their heart. I'm going to put my ways into their mind and my ways. I'm going to give them a heart that is preloaded with my ways. Now, a few weeks ago, Luke spoke on this um, whole idea of, of um, saltiness, and he spoke on love and loving our enemies, and so let me just say this to you. If you know Jesus, your heart is already, already pre-programmed to love your enemies. It is, it's pre-programmed. It's already, it's loaded. All you have to do is open the program. And it's the Holy Spirit who does that for us. And, and it just takes us yielding to him. If we walk by the Spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And so this, this whole idea of loving others becomes something that's like not really really hard but it becomes a flow of life and it becomes something that actually brings us into alignment on the outside with what God's already done to us on the inside and so that's where you find peace then and that's where you find confidence and joy in life because you're not out of alignment. Your front wheels aren't wobbling everywhere you go. You know, know, you've you've had that happen where you hit a certain speed and the front end of your car just starts wobbling. Well, you know something's out of alignment and that's not pleasant. And in our lives, when the way we're living is out of alignment with what God has done in, in us in making us new creations, then we experience all sorts of unrest because we're not in alignment. And so this this whole idea of loving others is simply a matter of letting the Holy Spirit unlock that program and let it flow through you. And now there are things that can hinder it. We're going to get to talk about that in a moment. But a couple of weeks ago, I talked about compassion and particularly compassion for the poor. And that's also pre-programmed into us so that we... You know, God's made a part of us, just like it was part of Jesus. See, Jesus was the most loving person ever, and he was the most compassionate person ever. And it says over and over in the New Testament that Jesus felt compassion. He felt compassion for the multitudes, so he fed them on one occasion. He felt compassion for the multitudes, so he taught them on another occasion. He feels compassion for a, a, a widow whose son, only son just died, so he raises the man from the dead. Over and over again, we see that Jesus' motivation was compassion. And compassion is something that God puts inside of us. Now, there are things that block that. I mean out of kind of, in some respects, self-protection, we come up with reasons that we shouldn't show compassion on the poor or on the hurting or on the needy. And one of those might be that we think they're unworthy of our help. Some people actually think that. They got themselves into this mess. Let them get themselves out. Uh, Others might think, well, if I help them, they'll take advantage of me. Or if I help them, they'll think I'm approving of them. And, and none of these are valid because Jesus fed the poor and he calls us to help and to feed the poor and the hurting and to have compassion for them. Some, sometimes we might think their problems are so overwhelming, there's no way I could give any satisfying answer to their life. And so I'll just do nothing because I can't, I can't fix their life. And no one should take up the cause of fixing someone else's life. Believe me, that's, that's, not, that's not what compassion leads us to. But when you say that, what we're, what we're denying is the fact that God can fix their life. You know, God can bless their life through some act of compassion and love that you might give. God can use that to bring about change in their life. A a good friend of mine who's with the Lord now, Bill Jackson, told me this story. He said that he and and some people from his church uh, when he pastored in Indianapolis went out to give food away. They come to one house, knock on the door, and the man invites them in. And he said the place was an absolute wreck. It looked like no one had cleaned the house or thrown any newspapers or magazines away for years. And he said it smelled bad, it was dirty, and it was just piled with junk everywhere. And he looked at the whole thing and he just felt kind of overwhelmed. And so he said all he did was gave the guy a bag of groceries and he just said a simple prayer, prayed for the man and said, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come to this home. And not a whole lot more than that left thinking, okay, uh, nothing's gonna change here. He said he went back two weeks later and the house was completely different. That visit, that, that prayer, that act of love released the power of God into that man's life, and he spent the next two weeks cleaning his whole act up, cleaning his house up, it's making it smell better and look better entirely. So never discount the small thing that you can do when you do it out of compassion. And so we should, we should always be leaning into compassion. I should always be leaning into, I'm gonna help but there are times when it's right not to, and you really have to sort through that with God, because if you have the heart of compassion and you're leaning in, then you'll be able to hear when when God gives you wisdom or you sense just this is not the right time for this situation or for this person. I mean, Jax did not stay there and say, "Okay, let's let's get a truck and let's clean your house up." He he didn't he didn't try to fix the guy's life, but It's never okay to have a hard heart. I think that's what what Jesus would wanna say to us. It's okay not always to step in, because sometimes there are other things you're doing or other priorities you have, but it's never okay to have a lack of compassion for the individual or the the people that, that we're dealing with. And so these things will make us salty. Jesus was the most salty person that ever lived. And do you know, by the way, the Old Testament word for compassion is the Hebrew word raham, which means womb. And so, what what compassion is defined as is the feeling a mother has for the baby in her womb. Isn't that incredible? God feels that compassion for us, and He wants us to feel that compassion for others that's already in you because you're new. And, and so just say, Holy Spirit, unlock more of that in me. You know, Holy Spirit, unlock more of that compassion. Give me more, of, let me experience, release more of that compassion in my life. That's why um, people that were rejected by society and culture did, were not afraid to come to Jesus. They flocked to him because he was filled with compassion. And you see, the world needs compassion. Salty, a salty church and salty believers. So Jesus said in John 15, he said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. I said earlier that um, we emphasized that when God enters into assessment, which is the word judging, let's just use the word assessment. When God assesses my life, it's always for the purpose of pruning, not for the purpose of condemning. And, and so here, Jesus makes some profound statements. First of all, he says, I'm the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. And then he says, we're the branches. He says, every branch in me. And so you think about identity. We are in Christ. I'm a branch that's a part of him. I am in him and I find my identity no longer just out there in the world. I find my identity by being connected to Jesus and being part of his life and his life is flowing through me and apart from him, I have no life. And so he goes on to say, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, some translations make it sound like he takes them away and throws them into the fire to burn. Later in the passage, it says something like that. But in this case, in this verse, uh, all it really says is branches that don't bear fruit, he picks up. That's all it says. He takes them in hand. Takes them in hand. That could mean a couple of different things. There's, there's one practice that uh, vine growers have in the Middle East where if a vine is going along the ground and it's shooting out too many runners into the ground, it's going to use up all of its energy to produce just more vine and they will pick it up. They'll lift it up and put rocks under it so that it can't attach itself to the ground and it has to grow up as a vine should and produce fruit. Another picture might be just, he's taking it to the hothouse. You know, maybe this segment of vine uh, just It needs more care before it's thrown out there in the world. But the point is, it's not necessarily saying that that, that vine that's not producing fruit, uh, that branch that's not producing fruit is going to be cut off and destroyed. It's not judgment. And so he goes on to say, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it will bear more fruit. So God's intent is that we are fruit bearing. And the believer is... Fruit bearing, that's just part of being a Christian. And God's heart is to assess our lives, and He calls us to this self assessment under the leading of the Holy Spirit so that we can determine what needs to be taken out of my life. Uh, and, and what needs to be pruned out of my life. And the Holy Spirit shows us that. Sometimes uh, he just does it sovereignly and we just find ourselves in a place where it might be painful. There might be it, it, just, just because I'm so used to having this in my life that I don't want to give it up. But God's saying, no, that's keeping you from being fruitful. And so he prunes away the things that draw energy away from the main task, the main purpose, which is fruitfulness. I think Luke used the illustration of tomato plants. And um, well, for one thing, have you ever seen a tomato worm? Man, they're as big as your thumb. They're ugly. Uh, If you see a tomato worm, of course you pluck that off. That's not really pruning. But the plant itself will also grow too many branches. And where, where the stalk comes up and a branch comes out, then another little branch will start right there at that little crevice, right between the, the branch and the stalk. And you have to pull that out because all it's going to do is take energy away from the plant. That's pruning. And so pruning is taking away things that are not helping to move ahead. Not necessarily bad things, but things that don't help to move ahead. In fact, I break it down like this. There are three areas of life to assess. The good things, and the good things would be things like patience, compassion, forgiveness, love, um, hard work. Did you know hard working is a godly virtue? Working hard, encouraging others, keeping your word, giving, serving, um, studying the Bible, fellowship, Sharing God with others, being compassionate and loving, these are all the good things. And there may be an assessment that says, well, God's saying at this point in time, loving others is the thing that he really really wants that to increase. And that's part part of how he's looking at my life and, and saying, okay, well, what do we need to pull out of your life in order for that to happen? in order for that to grow. Then there are bad things, and of course the bad things always need to be gone. Things like living with hatred, or um, drunkenness, or sexual sin, or stealing. How about jealousy, or coveting, or, or um, j- just having too materialistic of a mindset, or being isolated, isolating myself from others. Isolating myself from other believers. Uh, All of these things are bad and they need to be just done away with. But then there are neutral things. Neutral things, in the Bible, one of the neutral things was whether you should be a vegetarian or not. And and Paul says, some of you eat meat, some of you only eat vegetables and don't judge each other over it. And what that means is this is a gray area. It's neutral. It's neither good nor bad. Uh, Other places Paul talks about, the apostle Paul talks about eating meat offered to idols. He says, some people have a very sensitive conscience. And if they think there's even a chance that this meat was bought in the meat market where it was offered to an idol before the animal was slain, then they won't eat it. But other people say, hey, you know, that's nothing. You know, it's just meat. I'm going to eat it. And Paul says that both are okay. Uh, He says, the one is the weaker brother, the one with the overly sensitive conscience, but... Um, He says it's a gray area And so it's not like there's an absolute right or wrong there Probably other gray areas in the New Testament But um, holy days Do you consider a day to be a holy day or not? That was a gray area But I think for us today One of the most important things for us to assess And to ask God to assess Is how we use our leisure time Okay, leisure time is neutral it's neutral there are all sorts of neutral things we do in our leisure time I was, I was thinking of Tom Brady who won I think his seventh Super Bowl this year he's 43 years old is that right 43 Steelers quarterback Ben I think he's 38 and he's having a hard time keeping up and Tom Brady is still winning Super Bowls you know what He doesn't eat as many potato chips as I do. I'll guarantee you that. In order to be an NFL quarterback, he's evaluated what is the good? What do I have to do positively to to be an NFL quarterback and stay in good health? And then what are the bad, cut that out? And then what are the neutral things that can interfere with the good things because they take so much of my time and life and energy? And that's what I wanna focus on is those neutral things because a guy like Tom Brady has that down for football. And if a man will give his life focus and direction for something like winning a worldly trophy, how much more should you and I assess our own hearts and our own lives so that we get to lead people to Jesus? And so this verse in 2 Timothy also um, outlines this, 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. It says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Okay, he's he's saying Christians are like soldiers. So he says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. And it goes on to say, So that he can please the one who enlisted him. So, If you're a soldier, what does that do to your TV time? You're going through boot camp. How much TV time do you get? Not much, if any, nothing probably. What's that do to lingering over a meal and just sitting there drinking half a bottle of wine with your meal because you have the time to do it and you want to read the paper and catch up on the news at the same time? You don't get to do that. There's, 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 there's all these neutral things that you have to cut out in order to be effective in what your calling is. And so what you and I need to do is to take different areas of our lives before the Lord and say, God, what area do you wanna work on next? Because I believe God works on one area at a time. Primarily, that's the way, main way he does it. In fact, when we started this church, I, I had this, I just thought, I just wanna preach the Bible. But I've been in churches before where all we did was preach the Bible. And unfortunately, it led to a lot of legalism and people comparing. And, and then that leads to an unmerciful context. And I'm, I'm praying about that. And God spoke to me and said this. He said, tell them who I am and what I'm calling them to. And then tell them all I'm asking them to do is take the next step. Just take the next step. That's all you have to do. So I don't want to overload anyone. I don't want to overwhelm anyone or have you leave here feeling like, oh man, I've got so much I've got to fix in my life. All you have to do is take the next step. And so looking at our time use, looking at our leisure time, just some some things maybe to consider would be this. Spending time with friends is a good thing. Wouldn't you say? How many? Spending time with my friends is a good thing. All right. All right. But if time with my friends is taking away time with my wife, taking away time that should be hers, is it a good thing? It's not. No longer a good thing, is it? How about this? How about if time with my good Christian friends really encourages me, but I have no relationships with anybody outside Christ? But boy, I have all this great time with my, with my friends, all this good fellowship. Is that a good thing? I mean, Christian fellowship is a good thing. In fact, it's so good, um, you know, I'm, I'm willing to come and wear one of these crazy masks just to get it. And worship is so good, I'm willing to come and I'll just wear one of these crazy masks because worship and fellowshipping with other believers is so important. But if I have no relationships with anyone else, out there, how are they ever going to have someone in their life that is going to be there when they hit a point where they need some answers? And so, or how about this? Just just another time use thing. If I'm spending all my time with non-Christian friends, and I'm saying, oh, I'm here to influence them. Yeah, I'm, I'm really going to, I'm going to influence these non-Christian friends, but I have no time for fellowship with other believers What's going to happen is my non-Christian friends are going to become the greatest influence in my life, and I'm going to start to adopt their perspectives rather than them adopting mine, very likely. And so time use is just a crucial thing, and I think it's something we all need to look at and ask ourselves about. Just some other specific things to think about. How about TV and, and movies? You know, it's so easy to binge. I have binged on TV before where you get to the end of that episode and what, wait, wait, what's gonna happen? And you know what? You don't have to wait till next week, it's right there. And I'll often tell myself, just gonna watch the first 10 minutes to see how that's resolved. (laughs) You know, do you ever do that? And then there's, you watch that whole episode, then there's another episode and another. And I mean, it could be the Waltons that you're watching. How many people know who the Waltons are? Okay, okay, so if you're under 40, the Waltons is this great, wholesome, nothing bad, no sex, no no cussing or anything like that story about this family in uh, West Virginia during the Depression, okay? Binging on the Waltons is not good for you. Unless you have COVID and you can't read because you're too exhausted to read, then maybe binge on the Waltons. But... We have to. We have to evaluate that. We have to ask ourselves. Even if this shows a good show, or even if it's mostly a good show, um, binging, spending too much time, telling myself, "Well, I'm relaxing. This is really important that I get this time because I have a high stress life, and and I've got to have this downtime." I, I know you do, and I know I do too. I'm gonna. I, you know, I I, I watch TV but God's speaking to me about watching less TV, okay? And so maybe he wants to speak to you about that. Hobbies. You know, sometimes as positive a hobby as woodworking can become an obsession. And that's it. You know, uh, that's all I'm focused on. Um, Online shopping. Isn't that a great one? Finding great deals. Oh, man. (laughs) But at what cost to your time and at what cost to your heart? There's so much stuff you can look at out there and see and desire. You know, the, the the lust of the eyes. In 1 John 2, 15 and 16, he says, there are three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the eyes is related to online shopping, unless you have great discipline. Okay, it is fun, I know. there've been Just to be honest, there have been times... I've wanted to buy something, I've researched it, I might take three months to research it a little bit at a time, and I get right up to the point of buying it, and then I think, ah, I don't want to spend $200 on that after all. And all that's wasted time. And so we need to be wise about that. Um, there, there are other things that we need to consider, like Facebook. Connecting with friends is good, but is it an obsession? Is, or is there a healthy use of Facebook? And how many affairs, someone had a statistic on this once on how many affairs have originated through Facebook because someone connected with their high school boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, that doesn't mean necessarily that it's wrong to do. It's just because of that. But I'm just saying that there are good things about it and bad. Twitter, you know, I don't even know what Twitter is. <laughs> But from what I hear, it's it's not necessarily good if you get too much involved in it, okay? Probably is good in some respect. I mean, any communication is good to a degree. But video games, I have to confess, I am hooked on a video game. It's called Bejeweled. <laughs> <clears throat> and there's one part of it that, that has butterflies and a spider at the top, and if you if you aren't careful, the butterflies advance to the top and the spider eats them. And uh, it's just kind of like fun to play, but that can, that can eat up a lot of time. Really can. You know what my weakness is? I get up in the morning and I tell myself, oh, I've got to wake up my brain. Do you ever, I mean, I don't want to put this in your mind if you've never thought of it, but I'll get up and I'll think, I'll oh, brush my teeth, you know, do my bathrooming and got to wake up my brain, get that bejeweled on. But, uh, Look, that's something that I'm I'm, I'm sharing that, but I'm evaluating that. You know, how do I control that? How do I keep that from from being like a sucker on a tomato plant that takes away from time that should be given to something else that's far more important and far more beneficial to my life? Um, Politics and news media. Man, all the videos and all the videos people send and send around, Uh, sports, watching or playing, lawn work. I I heard a guy say this 40 years ago. He said, idolatry can start with something as simple as a desire for a well-manicured lawn. I've been waiting all these years to say that. (laughs) But uh, I thought that was a pretty profound statement. So whatever it is, we, we need to be asking ourselves in these areas that are neutral, we need to be saying, God, search my heart and show me. Give me wisdom, Lord. And God might, might just be saying, hey, you know, you've already got the wisdom to know what to do with this. Do I have to tell you again? Or do I have to reveal more to you? Um, I, one day I was working in the backyard and I was trying to put up a clothesline and I dropped this tiny little screw into the grass and I was frustrated and I said, oh God, if you love me, show me where that screw is. <laughs> and the Lord spoke to me and said, really? Really? I didn't find the screw, but I did I did conclude that that was foolish of me to ask God for that just to show me that he loved me, but um, to ask him, and, and, and sometimes he's just going to say, look, you already know, just look look it over, look it through, and, and don't leave here with guilt, just find one thing, one thing, maybe instead of watching three hours of TV a night, you're going to cut it down to two, you're going to do something else with that other hour or or, um, you know, instead of spending all this time on a hobby, whatever it might be, you know, God, God's going to not, not just take that out, it's not just taking that out, it's replacing it with the good thing. It's replacing with the thing that helps you to grow and mature and fulfill the mission that God's called you to and that God has for us as a church. So, Father God, thank you for your goodness and your life. Thank you for the mission you've given us. And uh, we, we do want to fulfill it, in Jesus' name. Amen.